Well, it's a joy to be with you. I understand that you have been studying some mountaintops uh, this, in this season uh, of studying God's Word, and uh, tonight is no different. Tonight we are going to Mount Carmel. Uh, I had the privilege of standing on that uh, mount uh, and mountain range a couple times, uh, and it's pretty incredible to think about what happened there. And if you don't know what happened there, you're going to know by the end of today. So uh, today we're at Mount Carmel in, in the northern tribes of Israel, uh, and I want to just pray one more time uh, as we begin our time uh, in God's Word. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, you are big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Have you heard of the game Wits and Wagers? A few of you? A few? Okay. Uh, Pastor Sam introduced it to me, which is probably no surprise to any of you, because if it's got wagers, bets, or gambling involved, that probably sounds just like Pastor Sam, right? (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, You tell him that when he comes back. No, it's an innocent game. It's a fun game. And if you're not familiar with it, the premise of the game is pretty simple. Uh, One person reads one of the game's answers, which is asking for answers that can be ranked or put in order in some type of scale. For example, it might ask, uh, what year was the first year man walked on the moon? And then everyone writes down their answers. The answers are collected. They're arranged in order, and everyone is given two chips to wager at the beginning of the game. So once all of the answers are out, you can bet one or two of your chips on one or two of the answers. If you're confident that one is correct, it makes sense to put all your chips on that answer. If you're less confident, then it makes sense to hedge your bets and put your tokens on a few different answers. What I find frustrating is when I doubt what I knew, when I doubt what I know. I hear a question and I know it. It doesn't happen often for me, but once in a while I hear a question and the answer comes right to mind and I am confident, I write it down But then I start to doubt what I thought I knew. When all the answers get put out before me, I start thinking, was it 1969? You know, 1965 is starting to sound awfully familiar. And when I start to doubt what I knew was true, I start losing confidence. I start hedging my bets. And when the correct answer is finally read, I kick myself because I could have wagered both of my tokens on the right answer instead of spreading them out. And now I'm broke and Pastor Sam has won again. Now some would say that it's wise to hedge our bets. Some would say it's a good idea to play it safe in this life. And there is a time and place for that to be sure. But there's one area of life where this will always spell disaster. There's one area of life that this never works in. We're playing it safe, spreading our eggs out to different baskets always will destroy us. And that's when it comes to God. If we hedge our bets with God, putting only one chip on him and another chip on another, it always spells disaster. It's always a loss. It always leads to destruction. And it's never a safe strategy. But the truth is we've all hedged our bets We've all hedged our bets. We've all made a a backup plan and strategy for God. At times we put some of our eggs in the God basket, but others in another basket just to be safe. We all, just as Israel did time and time again, we hedge our bets, we adopt supplemental programs, we rely on backup strategies just in case this whole Jesus thing doesn't live up to our 
expectations. But the truth is, it's killing us. It's killing us. And each time we do this, knowingly or unknowingly, we choose destruction. We drive ourselves towards drought and death and darkness. The big idea of our story tonight, and we'll see it come out in several different ways, is when Israel hedged her bets by seeking other gods, Yahweh turned them over to their own destruction to show them there is no life out there. When Israel hedged her bets by seeking after other gods, Yahweh turned them over to their self-destruction to show them there is no life out there. And friends, the same is true with us. When we hedge our bets, when we seek blessing from other gods, other idols, other worldly things, Yahweh turns us over to our own self-destructive decisions, but he wants us back. He wants to show us that there is no life apart from him. We all want life. If we're being honest, deep down, we all want life. Not just to be alive, but to truly live, to have the good life. The Bible calls this eternal life, and God has made it available exclusively through Jesus. And yet, too often we hedge our bets, we add supplements, we want the good life that Jesus offers, but we seek safety, security, happiness, identity, and purpose also from the things of this world. And when we do, when we make that decision to limp between God and worldly things, when we don't put all of our eggs in the Yahweh basket, he turns us over to our own self-destruction and he shows us that there is no life apart from him. He wants our undivided worship. He wants our undivided love because it's only in him that we will truly find life. And so tonight I'm going to read for us the story about Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. I hope when we get to that, you will read along with me in your Bibles. It's written for us by the prophets. I'll explain some of the important details after I read it, and then we're going to draw out three claims from the prophetic author. So we're going to read the story, we're going to hopefully understand the details well, and then we're going to draw out three claims from the prophetic authors that are intended to change us, to shape us, and to correct us. 1 Kings 18, 20 through 21. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Prophets limping, and the word answer. These are the three most important words in our text tonight. But before we read our entire passage, we need to understand the background that led to Israel being full of false prophets. We need to understand the story up to this point, which leads to Israel limping between serving Yahweh and serving Baal. We need to understand why they refuse to answer the prophet Elijah when he asks, in essence, choose today who you will serve. Our story tonight comes in 1 Kings 18, and it comes during a period of the biblical story called the divided kingdoms. Israel is divided, the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. Now, several hundred years before this, you probably all know the story. Yahweh mightily rescued the descendants of Abraham out of slavery in Egypt. He formed a covenant with this people. It's like a marriage vow. 
And they both agreed to remain loyal, committed, and in steadfast love with each other. God promised to bless them, to send them rains for their crops, and to bless all the families of the world by blessing them. Israel promised to have no other gods besides Yahweh. And curses and death would be the consequences if either cheated on their vows and both parties agreed to the terms. But we barely turn the page and we discover a problem. Israel complains and accuses God on the next page of bringing them out of Egypt just to kill them in the wilderness. When they're at the mountain of the Lord, they beg Moses to spare them from having to speak to and hear from God face to face. Just a little while later, when God brings them to the promised land, they won't go in because of reports of giants. And just generations later, now in the land, they outright reject Yahweh as their king. And through all of this history, God is loyal. God is faithful. God never stops extending steadfast love to this people. And yet through all of this history, at the same time, God gives the people exactly what they want. He turns them over to the destruction of their own rebellious decisions. When they accuse God of leading them into the wilderness to die and they refuse to enter the promised land, he gives them what they want. And that generation wanders for 40 years and they all die in the wilderness. When they refuse to hear or speak to Yahweh face to face and instead demand a prophet, a mediator, we hear all throughout the rest of the Bible, the word of the Lord was scarce in those days. And when they're in the land, not too long after, and they reject God as their king. He gives them what they want. He concedes. He warns them what humanly kings will do. It will spell the disaster of the country, and they insist. And so God gives them what they ask for. Saul, a bad king. David, a good king at first, but with some serious flaws. And then Solomon, a two-sided king, one full of hope. The other side leads the nation into idolatry, division, and death. This is the big story that leads up to our story tonight. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divides. The ten northern tribes divide from the two southern tribes. They retain the name Israel. The two southern tribes are called Judah. Tonight, our account occurs in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, there's been several kings already since the kingdom divided, and not one of them in Israel were good. The king in our story tonight, King Ahab, is the worst one yet. 1 Kings 16, 29 and following reads this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, his, his dad was pretty bad news too. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. That's in Israel. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who went before him. Now I know this is a lot of background. This is a lot of lead up. 
But we do need to understand all of these details if we're going to make sense of tonight's story. Ahab is now the king of Israel, and he is as nasty as they come. One of the worst things that he did, he married Jezebel, a foreign princess, and together they import pagan worship into Israel, and Jezebel slaughters all of God's prophets. Now, there's one thing you need to know about this pagan god, Baal. He was a storm god. They believe that he was the God who brought fertility to the land, rains for crops in their season. You see, ancient civilizations like Israel, they depended so much on their crops. It was their livelihood. And so rain meant life, drought meant death. And you know, I can picture what the Israelites were thinking. They probably were thinking something like this. Sure, Yahweh is the God of our ancestors, and he's pretty powerful. But let's play it safe. Let's throw some worship at Baal, too. There's no sense in putting all our eggs in one basket. Let's do all that we can. Let's hedge our bets to make sure our rains come in proper season. And so two chapters, two chapters before our account tonight, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he raises up Elijah to be his prophet, and he sends this message to the nasty king Ahab. He says this, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And from the moment Elijah utters those words, not a drop of rain falls in Israel. The ponds, rivers, and wadis dry up. Drought settles in. Crops begin to fail. And the people of Israel turn to Baal for relief. And so three long years go by. Elijah the prophet goes into hiding. But Yahweh calls him again after three years to bring a message back to that nasty king Ahab. Because the Lord is going to send rain. But before he can, he must turn the hearts of his people back. A divine showdown is thundering. A battle between the gods is storming. And Elijah requests an audience with King Ahab. And now we get to our text tonight. So I'm going to read 1 Kings 18. 17 through the end of the chapter. It's a long account. I hope you'll follow along. Verse 17 and following. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, you and your father's household, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God And I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. 
Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at, Eli- at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried out and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces And said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they they seized them. And Elijah took them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. For there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and he looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud, like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot to go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. It's the end of our account. It's the word of the Lord. So after generations of idolatry, generations of idolatry, in just one chapter, there's a massive change. Israel goes from being polytheistic, worshiping multiple gods, to monotheistic, worshiping Yahweh alone once again. 
Before the king, the prophets, the entire nation, Yahweh proves he alone is God. He alone can benefit him. He alone can answer. Let's take a moment to look at a few details from this account before we draw three claims from the authors. Let's take a moment. We'll consider a few of these details. The first one, I want to see if you notice, the account opened with a blame game. Did you see that? As soon as nasty King Ahab saw Elijah, he says, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He blames Elijah for the drought and trouble that has come upon the nation. But Elijah quickly and boldly puts the blame right where it belongs. It's because of you and your father's household that this trouble has come upon Israel. It's just as God had warned. When kings act like the nations, when nations have kings like the nations who rule through violence and the worship of foreign gods, it is the undoing of the nation. And so because of Ahab's commitment to Baal and introducing him into the worship life of Israel, God has withheld the rain from them to prove that he alone can benefit Israel. All this trouble comes from Ahab and his family. The second area we need to make sure we don't miss some important details in is related to this showdown that we just read between Elijah and the prophets, Yahweh and Baal. First, notice who the target audience is for this showdown. It's the people of Israel. Ahab is there. 450 prophets are there. But it is the people of Israel who Elijah addresses. He doesn't talk to the king. He doesn't address the prophets. He says to the people, how long will you go limping between serving Yahweh and Baal? And they can't give him an answer. And after the contest begins and Baal can't answer... Elijah draws not near to the king, not near to the prophets. He draws the people to him. He prays for the people, and it's the people who respond to this showdown. I think we all get the point. This whole thing, this whole display of power is for the people of Israel, not the king. He's already sealed his fate. It's not for the prophets. They know better, and their consequences will be severe. But instead, God is once again pursuing his people. Because what's at stake here is not where worship, right worship belongs. It's not about preserving this monarchy. It's not even about the land. What's at stake here is the survival of Israel. Because if Yahweh worship dies out, so do the people of Israel. So God once again is wooing his people back, saving them from their self-destruction and decisions. And at the center of it all is this one question, who is Israel's God? Who is the God who brought them out of slavery, who gave them nationhood, who provided, guided, cherished, and loved them? Who's the God who bound himself so closely with them that his very reputation is on the line? Who's the God who suffers each and every time they betray him? It is Yahweh. Yahweh is Israel's God. He's the one who benefits him. He's the one they promised to remain loyal to. And so Elijah sets up this entire contest, this showdown with overwhelming odds to prove to the people who is in charge of Israel. And did you notice those overwhelming odds? It's overwhelming, right? 450 prophets to one. You have the prophets of Baal, they get to go first. 
use the best part of the day to compete in. They get to choose their bull. On the other side, you have Elijah, and he's all alone, surrounded by people who hate him, who oppose him, who are indifferent to him. And as if that wasn't enough, Elijah makes it worse upon himself. Did you see that? He makes sure the odds are insurmountable by dousing his sacrifice in water. Twelve dousings equal to the number of tribes of Israel, and it soaks everything. Not only does this show that Elijah was confident that Yahweh would answer, it shows that despite what seems like impossible odds, Yahweh alone is powerful to answer. And when the fire fell from heaven, and it consumed the bowl, the wood, the rocks, the sand, the water, it proved without a doubt that Israel's God is Yahweh, not Baal. Yahweh is Lord over the storm, not Baal. Yahweh is powerful to answer. Baal is deaf, mute, and blind. Yahweh wins. The hearts of the people are turned back. The people bow down and cry out, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh worship is restored in Israel. And even if it doesn't last more than a generation, at least at this point, the nation has been turned away from its destruction. But our account is not over. God has one more act up his sleeve. Did you notice that as soon as the people bow down and worship, as soon as the prophets are put to death, the true storm God speaks up once more? Thunder is heard on the horizon. Elijah says to Ahab, get up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. It thundered. The rumbles of thunder could be heard in the distance. Rain was coming. This whole thing started three years ago when Yahweh held back the rains. This whole thing started three years ago for this moment, for this showdown. Ahab and Jezebel brought the so-called storm god to Israel, and so God proved that Baal is powerless over the storm. Israel turned to Baal for relief instead of Yahweh, and the whole thing exposed once again Israel's failure. Just as in every generation, rather than turn back to Yahweh, they turn to pagan gods. Rather than repent, the nation doubles down on its own self-destructive path. But this whole contest, three years in the making, was designed by God to win his people back. It's just another example of his faithfulness to the covenant that he made with them. It's like a marriage vow. He promised to remain loyal, committed, and in steadfast love with this people. And though there is a limit and an end coming to the, to the end in which God will allow evil to reign, apparently, according to our text, that time has not yet come for Israel. And so he woos them back, his adulterous people back once more, and he opens the floodgates of blessing and waters their land. To conclude this message and to wrap things up, I want to I point out something that sometimes gets in the way of how we understand writings like this. Sometimes it's not obvious because of how you and I sometimes think of our Bible. Here's what I mean. If you and I were to go down to the children's wing and we were to look into children's Sunday school rooms, we'd probably see in multiple rooms these posters that divide up the different books of the Bible into sections. The first section is the law or the books of Moses, and it has the first five books of the Bible in there. Next, we'd see the histories 
And we'd find books like ours. We'd find Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and they would be labeled the history books. You see, we're taught from little up that these are the history books of the Bible, but that is a problem because they're not. Don't misunderstand me. Israel is a historical people. King Ahab really did reign for 22 years. Elijah called down fire from heaven. These prophets were put to the sword. These are historical realities. But the Israelites, Jesus, and all the apostles, they didn't call these books the histories. They called them the prophets. This book, just like Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, they were in the section of the Hebrew Bible called the prophets because... They're written for us by the prophets. These books aren't uh, interested in just giving us simple history. What we have are the prophetic interpretation, the theological interpretation of the events of this people. The books themselves even indicate this. Uh, You've probably seen it. Whenever you get to the end of the reign of a king, they say, if you're interested in the other events and accomplishments of this king, go read the histories. What we have here is not a history book interested in giving us just Bible trivia answers, rather the theological and prophetic interpretation of the events, and they're intended to change us. And so I want to draw three claims that the prophets are imposing upon us, three claims that are meant to shape us, change us, and transform us. Here's the first. When Israel ignored disobeyed and rebelled against God, they chose self-destruction. When Israel ignored, disobeyed, and rebelled against God, they chose their own self-destruction. Did you notice it in the text? When the people turned from Yahweh, the true source of rain, to Baal, it led to the destruction of their lands, their crops, their livelihood. When the people chose to worship a mute idol like Baal, they become mute themselves. Did you see it? The prophets cry out to Baal, answer us, answer us. And despite their most extreme rituals, it says there was no voice, no one answered. Baal can't answer. Same with the people. When Elijah asked them how long they'll limp between serving Yahweh or Baal, they can't give an answer. Because choosing Baal, they become just like him, powerless to respond. Choosing false prophets who limped around the altar, they go on limping between two opinions. They become like what they worship. They reap the disaster of their own rebellion. And friends, this is true throughout the entire Bible. It is true for you and I. When people ignore, when people disobey, when people rebel against God... They choose self-destruction. When you and I turn from God, we orient ourselves towards death. God's way is not rules for rules' sake. God's law doesn't squash what could otherwise be a good and fun life. God's way is life. In every generation, for every human being, God sets before us two ways, two paths, two trees. On one side is Yahweh's way. And we don't know everywhere it's going to lead us. We don't know the joys and griefs that'll be along the way. We don't know about the valleys or mountaintop experiences we will encounter, but we do know where it leads. It leads to life. God's way, God's path is a tree of life. And on the other side, we have death. It is a path that looks tasty. It's desirable to the eyes. And when you walk it, it feels good. It promises the world 
but it leads to drought and death and darkness. And here's the reality. We can't walk both paths. We can't have both. We can't walk both paths. The Holy Spirit asks you and I today, how long will you limp between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, then follow him. God doesn't want us to conquer addictions to kill a good time, but because addictions are killing us. God doesn't ask us to reject bitterness by forgiving others as some sort of game, but because bitterness destroys people. God doesn't demand our exclusive allegiance to Jesus because he's some kind of intolerant jerk. It's because there is no other way that leads to life. When people ignore, disobey, or rebel against God, they choose self-destruction. It was true for Israel. It's true for us. If Yahweh is God, follow him. The second prophetic claim of our text tonight is this. There is a limit to how much evil God will allow. There is a limit to the degree of evil that God will tolerate. At some point, evil reaches the point of no return. And when it does, God hands it over to his wrath it was a small detail in our text. I wonder if you caught it. Verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. It's gruesome. It's violent. 450 prophets are slaughtered like animals. No one escapes. There is no mercy. The brook ran red with blood. Now, read out of context, maybe this seems over the top. Perhaps it's inconsistent with the way that you think about God. But remember what Elijah said. I even, or I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. Remember Jezebel, the foreign queen, married Ahab, slaughtered all of God's prophets and replaced them with hundreds of her own. And this massacre and these wicked prophets were driving Israel towards death and destruction. And this grievous evil had reached the end. It had reached the tipping point and God says no more. He turns evil back upon itself and Jezebel and her prophets come under his wrath. You kill his prophets, you seek to destroy his people and he'll turn you over to your own folly. He'll turn evil upon your head and destroy you by the very people you were destroying. You see, throughout the Bible, God's wrath looks like turning people over to their own destruction, turning evil back upon itself, turning his face away. Because there is a limit to how much evil God will tolerate. There is a limit to how long God will allow death to reign. And when people get to the point of no return in anger, God will make sure they meet the consequences of their own making. This happened with Jezebel and her prophets. God expedited their death-chosen fate. Now there's one more prophetic claim in our text. Though the evil of Ahab and Jezebel had reached the point of no return, apparently, according to our text, this wasn't true for Israel. The people of Israel had not reached that point, and this is our last prophetic claim from the text tonight. When Israel turns back to God, he receives them with lavish forgiveness and provision. When you and I turn back to God, he will receive us with lavish forgiveness and provision. 
It's a promise that you can count on because it's a guarantee founded in the very unshakable nature of God himself. When you find yourself in the drought, turn to God and he'll be there already with arms wide open, a smile on his face, delighted to bring you back into his own blessing and life. This account with Ahab and Elijah, Yahweh and Baal, it occurs after generations of blatant rebellion and spiritual adultery. Israel has been on a downward spiral for centuries, chasing their own self-destruction, rejecting God at every turn, and yet here God is yet again, And we get a glimpse into the very heart of God. Here again, we see that he is kind and compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. After breaking God's heart and covenant, here he is fighting for his people, wooing them back, toppling their idols, all so that they might see him. All so that they might see that he is their God. And he's jealous for their love, their affections, and their worship. Friends, this text is a reminder that God will allow us, God will bring us through some very difficult discipline and consequences to woo us back from idolatry and show us that there is no life out there. God will allow us and bring us through some very difficult discipline and consequences to woo us back from idolatry and show us that there is no life apart from him. And so friends, when you and I are sitting in the droughts of life, you know, the ones that we cause by turning from the source of rain, when you're thirsty because you're headed in the wrong direction, God wants you back. That thirst is a reminder that God wants you to turn And when we're in those parched places, we will be tempted to hedge our bets, to turn to worldly things in the drought. But they are all cheap knockoffs. They are all temporary fixes. Nothing in this world can deeply satisfy. None of them are a well that wells up into eternal life. And so in those moments of drought, don't turn to wealth or fame or sex, drugs, media to relieve the pain Turn to Yahweh. He is wooing you back. He's allowing you to feel that there is no life apart from him. He's fighting for your allegiance. He's jealous for your affections. And here's what you can count on. You can take it to the bank. I am certain of this promise. That if you turn back to God in those deserts, you will discover that God is already there. That he's got his arms wide open. He's got delight on his face. He is thrilled to have you back. And he is about to open the floodgates of his grace and generosity upon you. We can be absolutely confident in God's generous grace because it is who he is. He's kind and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he's never failed to be consistent to his own self. So when you and I turn back to God, We know he will receive us with lavish grace and generosity. It is who he is. And so, friends, if Yahweh is God, then follow him. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, it is a delight to be able to call you Father because of the accomplishment of your Son on the cross. 
And Father, we are reminded today of that great truth, that great price that you paid. And we can be confident that if you gave your best, you will do the rest. We know that no matter where we are, what drought we walk ourselves into, Father, we can turn to you and you are there to receive us. Father, help each one of us realize we must serve you and serve you alone. Not only is it right and good, moral and ethical, Father, it is life. Father, for each person here today, I pray that you would draw them closer to yourself, that we would put away idolatry. And when we stray, when we walk towards our own self-destruction, Father, that you would not let us go, that you would discipline us, that you would draw us back, that you would not turn us over to our own path. Father, thank you for rescuing us. Father, we love you. We thank you for this text. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.